This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. Last season, Joanne Folletta and the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra performed a series of smaller concerts. And one of the things that that allowed them to do during the pandemic was to learn new listening skills and also to explore repertoire they had never played before. They've taken highlights from last season and turned it into their latest recording called Light in a Time of Darkness. And that's what we're going to be hearing about this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Well, Joanne, let's start off by just telling me how are you doing since the last time we talked? Well, I think we're in a good place right now. Uh, We're not as far along as we hoped, but uh, we are playing with full orchestra in Buffalo now, and it feels great. And we have live audiences now, again, not in the same numbers that we had them last year. But that's partly also due to the winter in Buffalo right now. But but we're going in the right direction, and uh, we're hopeful. I mean, most of our orchestra has has, uh, been healthy the whole time, and... It just feels good to be approaching a kind of normal. Mm-hmm. Or a new normal. I'm curious what you might have implemented during COVID that you've decided has been really effective, and now it's kind of just become part of your new normal as an orchestra, or maybe even personally. You know, as an orchestra, we we, we were thrust into video when we never had done it before. It was new, but... But now that we have done it so much, we are going to use it, continue to use it mostly in a marketing, uh, educational way. I mean, we still believe that we need to get people in the hall. I mean, there's nothing like that. But but the skills that we learned about making a video, we can certainly use now and we'll continue to do that. And I think we talked about this another point, Julie, that I found that the Concerts, the smaller concerts we did all the time during the actual uh, year, you know, season 2021, were fantastic for us in developing new skills of listening, of leading each other, of repertoire that we never played. So that artistically, I find now we just did a Mozart weekend, and I found that the ensemble, the sort of unified uh, sense of sound was really more advanced. So in some artistic way, it was a great year. And your new recording represents those things you just talked about, how you've discovered some new ways of making music as an ensemble, and also how important it was that music was there during this really challenging time at the worst of COVID, for example. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that's worked its way into this new recording, Light in a Time of Darkness? Yeah, you're so right, Julie. I mean, without the music, I think we wouldn't have been able to live through this year. And uh, I remember our first time together, how frightened we all were. <laughs> frightened to come into any kind of a building with other people. We had our masks and, and double masks on, and we were sitting six feet apart and, uh, um, you know, being very strict, testing ourselves. And uh, and wondering, could could we play like this? And then in 
two or three minutes realizing, yes, we could. And all of a sudden feeling so happy that we were. It didn't feel quite completely comfortable, but it was wonderful. And I, and I realized just the, the fact that we could come to work every day and we, we played a concert. Okay, the audience was empty, but we knew they would be seeing it on, on their you know, a TV or, or computer screens. We knew they'd be watching out when we, when we broadcast it. It was a great gift. And I think we all realized that that kept us going emotionally, just being able to play together. And we grew very, very close, and we, we really honed a lot of the sort of um, great skills that chamber players learn, you know, that string quartet players learn, uh, especially because we, we had to sit further apart and we had to really pay attention. So, so um, we made a recording of some of our favorite pieces from that time because they were so meaningful. I mean, every concert is meaningful, but somehow when you're playing um, in the middle of something as dark as we lived through, it was, it, it meant life. It really meant life in, in a very real way. So, so these six pieces made it onto a disc, and I think we'll always treasure it in, in the memories that they had of, of uh, being together and knowing that somehow we would get through this. In this recording, Light in a Time of Darkness, the scene is set by Rayfon Williams, the very first piece, Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis. And one of the things I noticed is this was actually recorded later in your season, even though you decided to open the recording with it. Why was that? Why did you decide to open the recording with this piece? Because it's it's a magical a magical world. I mean, I think what, what happens in this piece is time is suspended. And for all of us, we felt a little bit like that in the pandemic, that time was suspended. You know, we, we were in this, this uh, kind of bubble of uh, something precious, something a little frightening, but uh, the, this piece crystallized it for us. Rayfon Williams did that by combining the music of a 16th century composer with a 20th century composer. Amazing. Uh, Vaughn Williams looked way back to Thomas Tallis, chose one of his hymns, and then recast it for strings. And in a way that seems ageless or timeless, time seems to stand still in this piece in the most magical way. And I think that for me, that was a little bit what the pandemic was like, time standing still. So, and we loved playing this. You know, I, I think you probably know that it's for oh, three groups. Uh, it's for uh, a large string orchestra, a small string orchestra off in the distance, and I always refer to them as the Angel Orchestra, and a group of four soloists uh, who, who play in the center of everything. And the landscape is, is very special. I think on this recording you can actually hear those distances. You can hear the Angel Orchestra singing from above us somewhere. the soloist being at the heart of what's happening. 
and the tutti bringing everyone together. So it, it is one of the most moving pieces uh, ever written. And it's very special, I think, in the English repertoire because in a sense, Vaughan Williams introduced the English people to the world, the English character to the world. I mean, English music wasn't at the forefront really in the 19th century very much, but he brought it back. He brought it back to the world stage and said in a very true way, this is who we are. So it's, it's a precious piece. It's interesting that you would refer to one of the groups as the Angel Choir because I've also heard it referred to as like a halo of sound. So those two things together really create a wonderful visual image of the music. Next, we travel to the 21st century with Ulysses K. and a piece titled Pieta. And I'm curious how you discovered this composer and this work, because I know that one of the things that happened during the pandemic is you did have time to go out and um, explore newer music or music you didn't know. It, and it's something your ensemble does anyway, but it sounds like that was something that you dove into a little bit more. And is, I was curious if this maybe was one of those pieces. Well, we certainly did that. I mean, I had more time to study, just study scores and discover pieces. But this one, I have to give complete credit to my English hornist, Animatics. is always a kind of a sleuth for English horn pieces and she's fabulous and she rediscovered this piece by Ulysses K. Um, it was written in the 50s or 1950 it was written in 1950 uh, played a couple of times not even in a professional situation we think it was played more in a, in a community situation and totally forgotten. Anna found this piece of course there was no recording um, and she brought it to me and I thought it was extraordinary. I mean, not just good, it was extraordinary. So I said, Anna, we've got to play this. And um, we managed to work on the parts enough so they were cleaned up and we could do it. And um, I found out that he, uh, Ulysses K was actually the first African-American to ever win the Prix de Rome. And when he was in Rome, he went to see um, the Pieta, Michelangelo's Pieta. And that's what this piece is about. His personal reflection on that work of art. And the English horn, of course, is an instrument that if we had to pick something that was closest to the human voice, especially the female human voice, it, it might be the English horn. And maybe this is the, the voice of Mary holding her son in her arms. So I'm so glad that Anna found this. And um, it, it sort of brings the whole, his, the whole opus of Ulysses K into our attention now, an incredible composer that really needs to be played and rediscovered. So did I hear you right that this has never been recorded before? So does this make this like the world premiere recording? It is. It has never been recorded. No, no. And uh, it was really 
really wonderful to be in the first reading of it, knowing that uh, that this is the first time, um, you know, we, in, in modern times, that we were actually hearing the sound of this piece. That's amazing. I was also thinking how, so you have the English horn in this piece, center stage, and then we have the oboe center stage in Wayne Barlow's piece called The Winter's Past. Tell me about this piece and a composer who's kind of from your neck of the woods a little bit. He is also almost forgotten. A wonderful composer named Wayne Wayne Barlow. And uh, he spent most of his life in Rochester, which is very close to Buffalo. He earned three degrees in music composition there at the Eastman School. And then he became a teacher there. And uh, so his life was tied so strongly to that wonderful school, to Eastman. Um, This probably is the one piece people might remember. He wrote it in 1940, The Winter's Past, and anyone who's lived in Buffalo or Rochester knows what that means because the problem with winter here is that it just lasts too long. You know, and when you're getting snow in April and May, it's like, well, this is enough. So the idea of winter passing on um, for us and for, you know, the Rochesterians who are close by... uh, it, it means a lot. I mean, it's a, it's a very big moment when you feel that, okay, winter is not coming back now. And our principal almost Henry Ward played it so beautifully. This is, again, another piece and another composer that deserves a lot more light shown on them, and and I'm hoping that this might intrigue some people into looking further. There is a familiar melody inside of this piece from Song of Solomon. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I would hear it, and I'm going, why do I know this piece? You know, it, it is from the Song of Solomon, and the words, of course, are, are, are reflect on what I was saying. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. And this was a southern folk melody. Now, um, I don't know how he knew that, but um, he did know that piece, and it was a good way of weaving it into this beautiful texture of strings and oboe. There's also quite a lovely violin solo in it as well. And there's an interesting story behind it. I don't know if you know that story or not. Uh, apparently in the New York Philharmonic Digital Archives score, there's an article clipped on the first page of this piece about President Eisenhower. Are you familiar with that story? No. Apparently, after a very long winter, he crossed the street, finally seeing the sun and feeling the spring weather. And he had an interview and he smiled and he told someone about the beautiful day and um, somebody called his attention to a passage in the Bible, the Songs of Solomon, and apparently that's what inspired the composer. So there you have it. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad to know that. (laughs) Well, it is a special piece. ¶¶ 
The Brandenburg Concerto number six gives a couple more members of your ensemble a chance to shine. Can you talk a little bit about this work and how it fits into the concept of light in a time of darkness? You know, I, I love the Brandenburgs, but I have to say the sixth has always been my favorite. And it might be a little odd because that's the only one without violins. He deliberately chooses not to use violin. So the voices of the uh, two violas come to the fore and they're supported by the cellos. I mean, it's a different landscape. It's a different world. filled with color, filled with this kind of mahogany and, and caramel color that's so beautiful. And, you know, even though Bach was not writing this in, in a spiritual vein, as most of his pieces were certainly for the church, uh, he also wrote uh, happily for secular reasons too, and, and this is one of the shining lights of that. Uh, there still is always something of the divine about it. I mean, there's something of the, the uh, maybe it's the, the excellence, the inevitability, the, the joy that, that we hear at the end of this piece. There's something that links it to something greater than ourselves. And so even though it's not spiritual in the sense that he is, he is uh, reflecting on some religious uh, aspect of his life, and he was very religious, it still has a kind of deep spirituality. And our two violists, Carolyn Gilbert and Anya Shemetyeva, played this so beautifully. In fact, at the end of, of the week, I decided that they should do it without a conductor because it was so ingrained in, in their beings, how they, how they felt the tempo, how they breathed together. So when you hear this piece, it is that group just playing alone. And uh, it's, it's amazing. It's so beautiful and uh, and so uh, so astonishing this this work of genius by Johann Sebastian Bach. And it's interesting too, as I'm thinking about the idea of darkness. It's those dark, rich tones that are coming through and creating the light. Perhaps maybe that's another way that this work fits into your theme. George Walker's lament from his lyric for strings is featured, and this is a work that he dedicated to his grandmother, and he wrote it very early. He was still a student at Curtis at that time. What do you love most about this piece, and why did you include it? You know, it, it's so personal, uh, this lyric. It's so personal and so from the heart. Now, he was a young man, and he was he was going to go on to write pieces in a very different style, you know, much more avant-garde, much thornier in some ways. But at the moment when he's having maybe the, 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 the biggest sadness in his life happen, his loss of his beloved grandmother, he chooses a voice that we all understand. And, and I thought at this time, um, you know, of darkness, you know, we all 
look inside and say, yes, okay, how, how do we find the way out? And for him, it was writing about it, writing about this. And at the end of the piece, even though it doesn't end happily, it ends with a kind of acceptance and, and maybe a sort of thankfulness that uh, he had her at his, as his grandmother and he loved her so much. So there's a simplicity, but, but also a complexity of feeling in it. I mean, obviously this woman meant a great deal to George Walker and, and he was an amazing composer and hearing the beginning of his output was very important to me. And uh, I'm so glad we did this piece. And I, I think this is an American classic. I mean, we talk about Barber's Adagio, but this is a similar piece. It's a piece of mourning in maybe in, in in Walker's case, it's a little bit more intimate, a little bit more uh, uh, inner feeling of mourning, but uh, it's unforgettable and so beautiful. The recording closes with a Haydn symphony that isn't heard very often compared to some of his other symphonies. It's the Symphony Number no. 44 in E minor, and it has a nickname which in German translates to grief. So I guess that follows the walker pretty beautifully, doesn't it? It does, and, and we, we looked through the works of Haydn, and I, I found this one especially, I had never done it, and I fell in love with it. First of all, it's in a minor key, and this E minor uh, was unusual for Haydn. I mean, most of his symphonies utilized minor, of course, but they were in, in, in major keys. This one is, is, with one exception, solidly in E minor. Uh, but it has a lot of uh, energy. I mean, it, it has a lot of, of a strength. There's kind of a virility in this strong E minor key. Uh, but the slow movement is where it gets its name. The slow movement is actually in major. It's like a light in the middle of this of this, this very dark symphony. And when he was rehearsing that movement, Haydn said to his musicians, please remember this, when I die, I would like this movement played for me. And it's not sad at all, it's transcendent. It's a kind of like looking up to what is waiting in the next world. Uh, so I thought that's a nice thing to be thinking of. Uh, and it is is so beautiful. It's and you know in that time to write something so, in a way, romantic, so revealing, so passionate, was a step towards romanticism. of this E minor and the sort of uh, tension and energy of it. But then we come to this glorious third movement and Haydn chooses to make the third movement the slow movement, which already was a departure. But knowing that it was played at his funeral and in his memory and now bears that word trower of grief or mourning because he loved it so much, uh, was beautiful to end with. 
again, I, you know, we these are pieces that we would never normally play on our season because we have our 80 people who are playing and all of our percussion and our brass and, and we're using them all. But in the, in the year, that special year where we use smaller ensembles, we found these works and they were great discoveries of the works, but great discoveries for us of how we felt about them and how much they meant to us and how we saw things in this intimate setting that we didn't see in our as more uh, surround sound type repertoire. So, so it's, it's a very special CD for all of us. How many members of the orchestra are featured in these pieces then when you say you're using a smaller ensemble? Well, we could only use 25 people at a time. So while the, the, um, the makeup of that shifted a little bit, you know, we, we didn't use the same string players all the time. We tried to give everyone a chance to come and be together. Uh, that was the, the uh, regulation in New York State, that it could be no more than 25 people on the stage. Uh, that was a very interesting experience for us. And this recording, like 52 other recordings, are on your own label. Tell me a little bit about your label and why it's so important to have your own label for this ensemble. Well, it was important because we, when we started recording together 20 years ago, we were recording for Noxos and we were doing a lot of recording. And Noxos challenged us to find unusual pieces. And that was wonderful. They didn't want Brahms and Beethoven. They had all of that. So we've been on a journey of exploration with them ever since. Uh, But it did mean that for our local audiences, we couldn't record Bach, we couldn't record Haydn, we couldn't record um, some of the general repertoire, the most popular repertoire. So we started a different stream. We started our own Beau Fleur of the two French words, Beautiful River, was the original name of Buffalo. Uh, and it was changed to Buffalo because people couldn't really ex- like, pronounce the French, I suppose, at that time. But but it's the uh, Niagara River, which is one of the most beautiful rivers in the world. So so we named it Beaufleur, and we've done all kinds of, mostly, mostly live concerts on it, but of all different repertoire of pieces that have been written for our musicians, so some new music, but uh, pieces that we've done on tour, pieces for special occasions. And in this case, it was to document this time, this season that we had. Joanne, one of the things that you're passionate about is working with young people who are passionate about classical music. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing now? What are some of the things you have on the horizon? Well, the summertime is my very special time to sort of recharge myself by working with young people. So I go to a lot of festivals, uh, work with with young people as as young as in high school or college or even young professionals, and I find it thrilling. I mean, these, these young musicians are often playing significant pieces for the first time. And we're doing that together. And I can see from their ex- expressions on their faces how, how much they're falling in love with this piece that might have seemed impossible at the beginning and all of a sudden has become something that they'll always treasure. So um, their joy and their understanding of what it means to be a musician recharges me for the whole year. I just love that experience. So I'm really looking forward to that uh, in the months of June, July, and into August. And they learn a lot from you. What do you learn from them? You know why I became a musician in the first place.
they remind me of that. Their joy, their just, their surprise, their delight in even playing something. Uh, I remember how I felt, and and still do. But in them, it's so fresh and it's so on the surface. And their joy in having friends who are musicians, I think that's a lovely thing too. When they come together and make lifelong friends at these festivals, and you know, these summer festivals, they they're really not a vacation. Although you know, you're in a place where you feel like it's vacation time, but it's intense work. But it in the most happy attitude. I mean, the the most wonderful, joyful feeling of being together and making music. A new recording called Light in a Time of Darkness with Joanne Folletta and the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer of this podcast. I'm Julia Macher, and this is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media.